From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And today's show features a variety of takes on the great outdoors, as you're about to hear from writers Anna Perrette, Anne Levin, and Marilyn Ogus Katz. Rachel's yard is perfect. Her grass, the greenest shade of green. It is unfortunate that Rachel has such a perfect view of my garden. Two hours earlier, We'd been sweltering in Boston traffic, choking on fumes. But for miles now, we hadn't seen a soul. We examine sepals, count petals, notice stamens. Plants are primarily organs of reproduction. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Stephen Lewis discusses writing among the wildlife that surrounds his rural Hudson Valley home. A black bear standing seven feet tall, reaching for birdseed, is a daunting, jaw-dropping sight. That's all just ahead on Read 650. When I was a kid, my family took summer camping vacations in the Adirondacks. My parents packed a tent and sleeping bags and food and utensils and a deck of cards. And we drove five hours north from New York City to a kind of paradise with trees beyond counting sweet, clear lakes for swimming, more stars than I'd ever seen before, and a crackling fire in a ring of stone. Instead of TV, there was conversation and stories of ancestors and time spent gathering wood and water, time that was altogether different from what we shared at home. Those childhood memories shaped the course of my life and my choice to settle in New York's beautiful Hudson River Valley. For today's show, I've selected three stories about the great outdoors, not all as bucolic as mine, stories first performed for a live audience in a theater in New York City. We begin with writer Anna Perrette, who first came to New York as an investment banker, transferred from London. She's lived in America for over 20 years, in Palo Alto, California, Washington, D.C., and New York City. Anna and her husband currently live in Larchmont, New York, which, while only 18 miles from Midtown Manhattan, features some very lovely gardens. Here's Anna Perrette, recorded at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell Theater in New York City, reading The Greenest Shade of Green. The brunette realtor in ballet flats pointed out, with a barely perceptible straightening of her shoulders, that the majority of Larchmont homeowners are very well educated and therefore that the schools here are marvellous. <laughs> Certainly in the great outdoors beyond my front door, in my neighbourhood known locally as the woods, it seems that every other housewife has a master's degree, every third a PhD. Rachel, Master of Science, ran a Fortune 500 company before she ran the PTA, <laughs> the mower and blower who tends her garden was the first member of his family to graduate middle school. Rachel instructs him, with a bestowing sweep of her arm, to program her sprinkler system. Perhaps she can figure out how to telephone him when it's raining so that he can come and switch it off. To be fair, Rachel's yard is perfect, her grass the greenest shade of green. I heard... I suspect I was supposed to hear, 
her telling Mr. Travis next door how to get rid of crabgrass and clover. It is unfortunate that Rachel has such a perfect view of my garden from her house. <laughs> Mr. Travis next door has a couple of sons in high school. We hear them. Sometimes they're loud and late, but they're in high school. Rachel said to me, those boys are out of control and that man is too much of a pushover. He should say something to them. I thought, didn't you ever do anything stupid in high school, you self-righteous cow? <laughs> I bet you did, because everyone does, not only Mr. Travis next door's kids. Rachel continued, Mr. Travis should stop being a friend to those boys and start being their role model. I said quietly, we're not there yet, Rachel. Rachel and I both have kids in middle school, in middle school with the mower and blower's son. Rachel has a cat. Mr. Travis next door has a dog. I heard... I'm pretty sure I was supposed to hear. Rachel telling Mr. Travis next door that he should make sure that his dog doesn't bark before 10 a.m. because her 12-year-old really needs to sleep in on a Saturday. We're thinking about Harvard. <laughs> Mr. Travis next door said, please keep your cat indoors. It's killing the birds in my yard. I thought... Way to go, Mr. Travis next door. <laughs> next, Rachel's son, the Harvard prospect in sixth grade with the long greasy bangs, took up the electric guitar. I heard Mr. Travis next door say to Rachel, please ask your son not to play the guitar after 9pm. My dog really needs his sleep. <laughs> so when I walk my dog in the rain, a dog's got to do what a dog's got to do, and Rachel's sprinklers go off, catching me below the umbrella, and I feel a rumble of irritation, like the tiny bubbles that skim across the bottom of a pan of water before it erupts in a boil. I offer up a silent prayer to Mr. Travis next door, then lob a loaded poo bag onto the greenest grass in the woods. Anna Perrett is a former docent at Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve at Stanford University and is presently a naturalist at Sheldrake Environmental Center in Larchmont. She's a frequent contributor to Read 650, and her award-winning work has appeared in many literary magazines. Anne Levin is a writer, editor, and journalist. Her articles, essays, and book reviews have been published by the Associated Press, USA Today, AARP, and dozens of other newspapers and magazines. During a long career in daily journalism, Anne served as national news editor at the Associated Press, coordinating coverage of elections in the 50 states and every imaginable kind of natural and human disaster. Today, Anne Levin recalls a memorable trip with an eccentric aunt to an ashram in the Berkshires. Here's Anne Levin reading The Majesty of Nature. I parked in front of the ashram and turned to Annie B. This is it, I said, our last chance to talk. Two hours earlier, we'd been sweltering in Boston traffic, choking on fumes. But for miles now, ever since we got off the turnpike and onto the shady roads that led to the retreat, we hadn't seen a soul. Inside the administration building, a shaggy-haired man in faded overalls reviewed the rules. No outside food, alcohol, drugs, or sex. Most of all, 
No talking, he said, tugging at his beard. Here, we practice noble silence. <laughs> Annie B. had been on retreats before, even in India, but this was my first, and I was glad to have her along. She was my father's oldest sister, born not long after the turn of the 20th century, a hippie before hippies and a beatnik too. She smoked a little pot, listened to jazz, and during her long insomniac nights, she played tapes of the Indian mystic Krishnamurti. Every spring, when snow was on the ground, she looked for lady slippers in the woods, and later in the season, for morels and ramps. Widowed at a young age, she had no shortage of admirers, in part because she was gorgeous, dark-complexioned, high cheekbones, a straight nose, a little like the Hindu goddess Parvati, if Parvati had been Jewish. <laughs> In our food and health-crazed family, Annie B. was known for her buckwheat pancakes, brown rice casseroles, cocoa vin, and headstands. She also walked backward on the high school track. When my mom invited her to dinner, she'd finish off the meal with five almonds for longevity and a gold-tipped black Sobrani cigarette, just one a day because they tasted so good. That summer in the Berkshires, I was fresh out of college, taking life very seriously. She was about 70 and wore her thick, gray-streaked hair in a fat braid down her back. When we got to our dorm rooms, I reminded her of the rules. Remember, no talking. Right, she said solemnly, then burst into a gleeful cackle. For the next week, our days were divided into walking and sitting meditations with Dharma lectures at night. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, it wasn't easy. My feet fell asleep, I couldn't sit up straight. Sometimes I'd doze off and start to tip over. To avoid embarrassment, I'd head outside for walking meditation, to pace back and forth on a dirt path worn into the side of a hill. One day, gazing out at the wooded slopes, I sensed the terrifying otherness of the pines. Majestic, yes. Beautiful, absolutely. But also mute, inhuman, oblivious to my concerns. They weren't green either. They were bluish green, verging on blue. That night, outside our dorm rooms, I whispered to Annie B, out there, on the walking path, Amid the majesty of nature, I think I got it, what Krishnamurti talks about, or maybe it's the Dalai Lama. You know, emptiness, nothingness. It was amazing. Here, have a Hershey bar, she said, pulling me into her room. <laughs> Celebrate your breakthrough. Where did you get this, I said, astonished from that darling girl who's sleeping with a meditation instructor, she said. <laughs> what, I exclaimed, how do you know that? Because she told me, she told me all about these holy teachers. And let me tell you, they get around. It turned out 
that Annie B., despite the rule on noble silence, had been chatting up everyone since the day we got there. <laughs> she even found a meditator who brought a stash of wine. Looking back, I realized just how much I learned from her about the art of living, that you can find your bliss in a meditation hall or in the great outdoors, and you don't have to give up sex, drugs, booze, or chocolate. <laughs> After leaving her job as a full-time journalist, Anne Levin worked as a freelance editor for various institutions, including Columbia University and the UN Population Fund, and she began to write personal essays and memoir. Anne is both a regular contributor to Read 650, and she serves on her advisory board as well. You can learn more about Anne on her website, annelevinwriter.com. Marilyn Ogus Katz taught in an educational opportunity program at the State University of New York College at Purchase and then served for many years as Dean of Studies at Sarah Lawrence College. She left academia to write, primarily fiction, and what had for Marilyn always been an exciting, illicit activity became a committed relationship with all of its joys and frustrations. Her contribution to our Great Outdoor Show is an essay she's called the valuable weeds of New Jersey. Here's Marilyn Ogus Katz. The botanist walks ahead and points to various sprouts on the forest floor, giving us both the Latin and the common names. We examine sepals, count petals, notice stamens. Plants are primarily organs of reproduction. Now this, the botanist says, is a real problem. He places his thumb and forefinger on the stem of a glorious rosebush in full bloom. It's an exotic. It spreads, crowds out the native species. He purses his chapped lips and frowns under his glasses, releasing the rosebush with disgust. I just learned that the barberry, a beautiful shrub that reddens each fall, constitutes yet another problem. The botanist keeps calling these recent immigrants to Eden exotics, a term that sounds politically incorrect to me. <laughs> I may be new to nature, but I always assumed it was value-free. Well, except for poison ivy, anyway. That's the joy of it, right? Instead, I feel as though I am entering a green world of class distinction. How far back is native? How far back do you have to go to find the beginning? The 17th century? The forest of the pilgrims? Prehistory? George and I were in our early 60s. We'd been together for more than three years, still crazy about each other, and were too old to have children. When we heard about this preservation project, we decided to adopt a stretch of the Appalachian Trail and care for its endangered species. We spent the morning at a workshop at the Wildlife Center learning how to distinguish these species not only from common plants, but also from the newcomers, mostly migrants from gardens. Our fellow conservationists included several bearded and earnest men of various ages, two single women, 
and a couple who had just come off a camping trip in New Hampshire. We stared at slides and we studied notebooks. It turns out the plants are threatened with extinction only in New Jersey. <laughs> they flourish in other states further north or south. This seemed to make the term endangered less dire, our task less momentous. Does it matter if one has to travel to another state to find a giant yellow hyssop? Apparently, it does. According to the National Forest Service official, we locate each plant, visit our stretch of trail when the plant blooms, count the number of healthy specimens, and send our findings to Washington, D.C. George and I chose a section with seven endangered species. Only one of our plants is pretty, a gentian, an enclosed purple cup with a tiny white fringe. Another is a straggly beanstalk. Still another, our sedge, looks suspiciously like grass. <laughs> the tiny fold at the top distinguishes it from ordinary lawn. Counting blades of grass sounds like an assignment for patients in a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> but I am not about to say so. Once you join a group committed to a cause, you can't expect them to laugh at it. Since our section of trail has many species and is close to the wildlife center, the botanist chose it to show us what to do. When we trudge along the boggy ground and over a bridge, I feel vindicated in our choice and protective of our turf. But the same moisture that nurtures our weeds also slithers under our boots. Every step releases a cloud of mosquitoes. I slather my face and hands with DEET, and when bugs fling themselves at my eyes, hover over my tucked-in plastic pants, and graze at my elbows, I feel well protected. At the same time, I am beginning to worry about myself. Perhaps it's because I am no longer young, but as the late sun slants through the yellow oaks, I find I actually care about these fragile sprouts and want them to survive long after I do. Marilyn Ogus Katz completed a novel, The Old City, about a family of Latvian Jews caught between Hitler and Stalin in 1940 and 41, and her collection of linked short stories, A Few Small Stones, about coming of age in an extended immigrant family in New York City during the 1940s, was published by Unsolicited Press. Marilyn's essays on Wordsworth, the teaching of writing, issues in higher education, and the concerns of older women have appeared in journals and anthologies. Marilyn says, as a late bloomer, I have to believe, along with Grace Paley, in enormous changes at the last minute. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Meyer, Karen Duquesne, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, 
and our show is produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College. The Writing Institute offers small, non-credit classes on its main campus in Westchester and one-day events and workshops in various convenient locations from Brooklyn to Scarsdale. The Writing Institute helps writers in every genre to grow, welcoming them into a supportive community of better thinkers, better listeners, and better writers. Visit sarahlawrence.edu. Stephen Lewis is a former mentor at SUNY Empire State College. He is a longtime member of the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute faculty and a longtime freelancer. His work has been published widely. And for this edition of Between the Lines, he shares some perspective on his rural Hudson Valley home and writing space with his essay, Inviting the Wild Things In. Some years ago, our pastoral backyard began to be pierced by howling coyotes, fisher cats shrieking like little girls, that terrible beyond thinking yelp of bunnies caught in some carnivores and sizers, a 400 pound bear lumbering in from the tree line. A black bear, standing seven feet tall, reaching for birdseed, is a daunting, jaw-dropping sight. Unlike a snake, it won't slither off, or scamper away like a deer when you open the door, or bang pots, or stand as tall as the rangers advise. Like the most arrogant of muscularly arrogant, overgrown teenagers, a bear won't flinch. If you're not food, you don't exist. Best stay inside, nose pressed to the window. Most days I work inside this civilized oasis of cinder block and wooden joist, double pane glass and fiberglass insulation, sheetrock and art on the walls, this gash of an intrusion into the forest. In my writing, I try to use the tools of civilization to get back to a primitive, wordless understanding of what it means to walk upon this earth and then try to translate it into narratives told in a pitch that humans can hear. If I don't get back into the forest, the work will be flat and uninteresting. Writers who write without an understanding of what lies beyond the intimate tree line might as well be writing Saturday to-do lists, which is what I do soon after the bears return from their caves each spring. Bear-proof the garbage bin, check. Reinforce the posts that hold up the bird feeders? Check. Bring in the bird feeders each night? Check. Let the dogs out whenever the grandchildren are playing in the backyard? Check. Protect the goldfish in the small pond from becoming hors d'oeuvres? Check. Lock the doors before we go to sleep. All around this DMZ, I know this. My house is nothing more than a fallen tree. The lawn is a clearing full of food and danger. We share the gurgling stream with creatures who, after all these millennia, still don't accept the notion of our dominion. That the weekend work I do to keep animals out must be abandoned Monday morning when I must invite them back in. Steve Lewis is a contributing writer at Talking Writing Magazine and senior editor and literary ombudsman for Read 650. His new novel, The Lights Around the Shore, 
is published by Moonshine Cove. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show, and it's the place where writers of all genres contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you will also find submission calls for upcoming shows. If you've already written a review on Apple Podcasts, thank you. If you haven't, now is a great time to do so. It really helps us, and it helps other people find the show. That wraps things up for today. Thanks again to writers Anna Perrette, Anne Levin, Marilyn Ogus-Katz, and Stephen Lewis. For more Read 650, you can see many original performances on our YouTube channel, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or at read650.org. Thanks so much for listening today, and please help spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.